Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2017 in New York City. I'm Lee Rawls with the ABA Journal. I'm Floyd Abrams. I'm Tom Clare. And George Freeman. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're here talking about Trump versus the press and the First Amendment. I just attended your panel, gentlemen, and I thought it was wonderful. Uh, George, you were the moderator. When you were putting this together, uh, what were the topics that were uppermost in your mind? There's a whole lot to talk about um, with the press and, and Trump. Goodness knows. Well, I think the, the main thing was to, that really we wanted to cover two broad topics. Uh, one was Trump's attack on the press from a PR point of view and whether that has succeeded in minimizing or hurting the cre- credibility of the press. And the other was really his specific legal threats on the press, primarily uh, in the libel area and even more so in the area of the Espionage Act and leaks and whether this administration is going to go against journalists and leakers uh, for really distributing information. And it was those two general topics that we wanted to cover. Uh, Floyd, you spoke a little bit about the dangers that journalists could conceivably face and the Espionage Act. Could you talk a little bit about what your biggest fears are regarding that and why that would be a danger? Yeah, my view is that um, the espionage law is very old, a uh, hundred years this year, uh, very broadly phrased, adopted during World War One. It didn't take account on the face of it of much in the way of what we now recognize to be First Amendment freedoms. So my concern is that that if uh, the Trump administration were to commence an Espionage Act prosecution against a journalist uh, who published information that he or she obtained from, let's say, some government employee who didn't have authority to make it public, that that could uh, be a genuine danger. I think the press would likely win it, uh, but we haven't had any prosecutions of the press as such in this last hundred years for simply publishing uh, uh, newsworthy information. And uh, that is uh, a broad concern, but a continuing one that I have. Now, Tom, you are coming from a little bit of a different perspective than a lot of the other people on the panel, um, and you come at libel laws from a different perspective. Can you talk a little bit about your backgrounds and maybe some of your recent successful litigation? Sure. Um, so I represent individuals and co- corporations and uh, uh people who have suffered a reputational attack. So I'm a plaintiff lawyer uh, who sues the media and who sues um, other folks when they get it wrong in that uh, realm. Um, Our firm recently brought Rolling Stone magazine uh, to court for libel for the gang rape article that they wrote a year and a half ago. Uh, We represented the former dean of students at the University of Virginia who was falsely accused in that article of having covered up this gang rape that was later turned out to be a false one. Now, as a journalist, it's easy to just blanket feel like, oh, libel cases are unfair. But what can be the real damages and real experiences of people written about in the media falsely? Sure. So, you know, there's a real 
um, human cost to what gets written in the newspapers and what gets put on TV. Um, people's lives, their livelihoods, their reputations, their careers. In the case of corporations who are uh, unfairly libeled, uh, market capitalization, their employees, their ability to employ people uh, are all affected by this. And so when we're looking at the damage that's caused by unfair or defamatory news coverage, we're looking at economic harm, we're looking at reputational harm. Uh, and there's a, a human suffering to this, uh, the emotional trauma that someone like our former dean of students plaintiff went through uh, when she found herself splashed across the pages of Rolling Stone in a false way. Now let's pivot a little bit because I think the panel all agreed that um, Trump and many others have used libel cases uh, not as a legitimate way to address real grievances, but as a way to bully the press and silence them. Um, George, could you talk a little bit about what slap laws are? Because that was something that came up in the panel. Sure. Well, the idea of a slap law is really to prevent exactly what you just said. It's not to change meritorious libel claims, but it's to um, essentially stop right at the start the case that's brought either that's unmeritorious and that's brought really to shut the speaker up or to punish the speaker monetarily by engaging in a long lawsuit. And since those aren't legitimate reasons to sue, if there's no underlying substantive good, re good claim, then the idea of a slap statute is to end those cases early and to even in many cases, in many states, to give the uh, defendant the attorney's fees he spent in having to defend himself so far. Uh, so the idea is that, that you shouldn't be allowed to be libel bullied as the president has done in, in his libel cases where he's a plaintiff, where his goal was really to just financially drain people who said bad things about him. Uh, and the idea is that those sort of cases should be stopped at the outset, before discovery, before a lot of money is spent, and without scaring the defendant into not publishing any more news about the person who's suing. Uh, so that's what a slap, and 29 states have passed that. And we're trying to get it passed in the U.S. Congress, although passing anything in this Congress is a, is a challenge. Now, Floyd, um, we also spoke a lot about leaks. Uh, and certainly this White House has faced quite a number of leaks, uh, some of which Trump has seemed to approve of and some of which he hasn't. But we are lucky enough to have you here on the panel. You were an attorney in the Pentagon Papers case. Uh, what commonalities do you see in the way the government has responded to leaks maybe back in the Nixon administration and today? Well, the Pentagon Papers case was in 1971. It was brought by the United States to prevent the New York Times and then other papers from publishing material from a secret and classified Defense Department study of how we got involved in the war in Vietnam. Uh, the government went to court. Uh, uh, the Times won the case. Uh, and that case is, you know, still very good law and very important um, uh, in preventing later presidents from even going to court uh, to try to prevent publication of certain materials. The primary complaint these days uh, from this administration has not really been about matters which uh, are the equivalent of what the government said was at risk in the Pentagon Papers case, there the, the government said, we're in a war in Vietnam, there are POWs held by our enemies. Uh, this can f really frustrate the war effort. Uh, none of that 
last thing was true. It didn't frustrate the war effort, and there really wasn't much reason to think it would. The claims made today are much broader uh, uh, about all sorts of different information leaking. Very recently, for example, we talked on the panel uh, about uh, the uh, conversation that the president had on his first day in office with the Australian prime minister conversation, which went really badly, uh, and which the president said at the end of it, uh, it was a lot easier to talk to Putin than to you. So, uh, you know, we're, we are talking about different sorts of matters, but there have been leaks before. There are leaks now. There are probably more leaks out of this administration than uh, any time in my lifetime, uh, including uh, under President Nixon. Now, one of the panelists, uh, his name is David Walsh. He was a reporter from the UK, and he commented that in the UK, he feels that their newspapers are worse, but they enjoy more public support. And I think that with the public conversation about fake news and a lot of controversy over whether the press is biased, there is not that same support for the press in the public. What do you think are the causes for that or the remedies? Can I start with you, George? Well. I think the attack by President uh, Trump on the press is really unprecedented. And it's really just greater uh, than any president in the U.S., even though he's not the first one to attack the press, obviously. And certainly greater than the more, let's say, civil folks in, in the U.K. So you have a kind of a greater attack on the press. And then you have maybe a more receptive clientele, at least on the, on the right, you know, his firm supporters, who believe, as he said, they believe him if he said he killed someone on Fifth Avenue. So they believe his attacks on the press. Um, so that's the mix that we're in. And it's kind of a dangerous mix because, as I think the last panelist said in the last comment of the day, um, you know, it undermines really the truth. I mean, the purpose of the press is to publish the truth and to have the readers believe that it's true. And if the president's goal is to say that anything published in the press, particularly anything that's unfavorable about me, isn't true, is quote-unquote fake news, whatever that means, uh, it really succeeds, or it has succeeded to some degree, in undermining the very purpose of the press. And I think that's very dangerous. Now, Tom, you mentioned that when selecting jury, jurors, you ask them often what their feelings about the press are. What is, has been the response, and what do you think the remedies are for the situation? Yeah, it's, um, it's striking to me as I travel all over the country and I pick juries in these libel cases, one of the questions that we are called upon to ask folks is, do you trust or do you distrust that what you read in the media? Or do you distrust the media in the way that they go about investigating and reporting the news? And overwhelmingly, uh, jurors all over America, across different demographics, across different uh, political lines, have a fundamental distrust for the modern media, even the mainstream well-known publications. And, you know, I think there are a couple of, of causes for that. Uh, one is the fact that there is just so much media saturation now, as someone uh, wisely said on the panel, um, there's so much content on the internet, there are so many cable news channels, there's so many hours in the day that need to be filled with content that it has become uh, overwhelming for people and a little bit of a race to the bottom to be fast rather than to be right. And I think people recognize that, that the overall quality, if you uh, normalize over all these media outlets has is, is gone down as a result. Um, I also think one of the, the issues is budget cuts, um, that in the news business, 
uh, it's become a commercial operation, whereas in years past, decades past, it was more of a self-regulating profession that money was pumped into it to make sure there was a strong editorial oversight, strong fact checkers, and those sorts of things have largely uh, and systematically been been reduced in, in even the most prominent newsrooms across America. So more mistakes are getting through, more errors are getting through, uh, leading to the public's distrust. And then finally, you know, I think that there is um, a real difference in the people that are considering themselves journalists today. Um, the training, the education, the experience isn't there. You find investigative reporters who are right out of college, 23 years old, looking to make a name for themselves, um, and don't necessarily have the experience or the wisdom of where to make judgment calls that the journalists of old did. So I think all of those things contribute to people's very real perception that, that uh, they can be less trustful of what they read. Floyd, you had an interesting theory on what the role of technology may be in people's feelings about the press or, or trust of the press. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my, uh, my view is that uh, one of the main things that has changed in terms of the relationship of the public to the press is that everything comes out on the same screen now. Uh, just about everything that is read is not read on paper. Uh, it is seen on a, the screen, and it's the same screen that the most disreputable, uh, uh, untrustworthy uh, people and organizations have their say on. And that's on one level all good for the First Amendment, that there's more speech by more people at low price or no price uh, available. But I think there's a slipover effect and that the public tends to view the totality of what they see on their screens as an entity, a thing, uh, and that it's led to, to great harm to the press in its reputation. The only other thing I'd say is I don't think the press has always been, ever been very good at explaining the good it does the stories that are true, uh, the good impact on the public for having done so. Now, how to do that without seeming or being self-serving is another problem. Uh, but I do think that, that the, the press, in order to defend itself, has to do a better job in talking to the public uh, ab about the, the positive side of its contribution to the public. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, if people are interested in hearing more from um, any of you, do you have any social media accounts or, or books or ways that people can reach out to you? Floyd, let's start with you. Uh, well, to hear more about what I think, uh, I do have a new book out called The Soul of the First Amendment. Uh, and I can be reached at uh, fabrams at cahill.com. Uh, to learn more about me and our cases, uh, you can go to our website. That's www.clarelock.com, C-L-A-R-E-L-O-C-K-E.com. And George? And I'm at the Media Law Resource Center, which is a nonprofit trade association which supports the media. And I can be reached at gfreeman at medialaw.org. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners here on the road with Legal Talk Network. I've been your host, Lee Rawls. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.